Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, ask for your uh, grace uh, fighting a cold, so um, I may laugh at how words sound myself as I pronounce them, so feel free to do the same. Um, so we've been working through uh, this series in Acts, and we are in the end of chapter 14, verses 21 through 28, and this captures the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And we have heard a lot about their journeys. We have seen them travel. They uh, have gone to Salamis on Cyprus, to Paphos, where if you remember, they had interactions with a man named Bargesus. And he was a magician and challenged them. And, and Paul called him out and he became blind. And there they saw great acceptance of, of the gospel. They've journeyed to Perga, and it was there that John Mark left them and went back to the church of Antioch, went back to Jerusalem, actually, and um, departed from them there. We hear of them going on to Greek Antioch, and there they go and they have time sharing the gospel and preaching and building up the church. And from there they go on to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby, spreading the gospel. The gospel that is Jesus Christ. But it wasn't all easy. We hear about the Judaizers who follow them and cause a ruckus in their work, who challenge them. We hear about the times they've had to dust off their sandals and leaving a city because they have not been welcomed or received well. We hear about the stoning of Paul because they just become so infuriated with this gospel message. And so this journey has not, by any means, been easy, but very much in line with what God has called them to, what the church in Antioch commissioned them to go do. And so they walk it out to the best of their ability. It's only seven verses, so it's not a lot, um, but it is very rich. And so um, we're going to pretty much look at one verse out of all seven this morning uh, is where we're going to spend most of our time. But let's read it, and we'll go from there. This is starting in verse 21 through 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, this is there in Derby, if you remember from last week, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the, the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained 
and they remained no little time with the disciples. So right away, we, we learn that Derby's kind of the end of their journey, and from there, they turn around, and they basically go back the same path that they did, except they, they skip the island of Cyprus. They just kind of sail then back to Antioch and kind of miss that. But they stop at every place along the way back. And in some places, they're, they're resharing the gospel. They're giving the message again. But as it, we see in verse 22... Mostly their work is on, the, on the journey back is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, teaching that through tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God, and appointing and committing elders to the leadership of the church. And so truly they are they're going back through, they're encouraging, they're building up the church which they established. And we're not talking about local churches, we're talking about the universal church, the, the, all who believe, right? That's their, their focus. There is no concept of local church in, in this passage. It is about the church. And so whenever we read church in Acts, it's about all the people who believe. And so they come back through and they, they first say, we strengthen the souls. And as soon as I got to this verse, I was like, well, there we go. And we're done. Because there is so much in those words. Strengthen the souls. Some of you may uh, remember a couple years ago, I actually spent way too much time looking back in our archives on uh, the sermons, where I believe it was Tim preached on Hebrews 12 about strengthening the weak hands, strengthening the weak knees, straightening the path. And he really honed in on this word strength. And so right away, I'm like, okay, strengthening is not just a like a simple word here. There's actually depth to it. And so the idea of strengthening is a theme that's throughout the Old and the New Testament. We first read about it in Isaiah 35, where it says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious heart, be strong, fear not, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the rec- there it is. recompense of God, he will come and save you. That directive there in Isaiah is not just for the individual. It's not for me to strengthen myself. It is to Israel, right? Isaiah is saying this to Israel. Strengthen the weak hands. Look around you, see who is in need, and strengthen them. Come around them. Because if you remember, they're building the temple, they, they have enemies coming in, and there are their vulnerabilities as a people. And so Isaiah says, strengthen them. Build up the people among you who need that encouragement. Hebrews captures this too and it quotes Isaiah 35. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And so strengthen from the very beginning as as Paul says this in Acts is about community. It's about that larger body, the church, strengthening the souls. 
strengthening together, right? It's communal. It is the work of the body of Christ to strengthen the weak knees, to strengthen the drooping hands. Because there's a mission we're called to. There's a gospel message that we have been asked to share, and that is offensive in culture. And if we send ourselves out individually, we're vulnerable, we're weak. And so we go together. If you've ever kind of been a part of evangelism ministries, most of the times they send you out in pairs, right? So that you are never alone, but you always have someone there. Someone there praying for you. If you look at the great evangelists of the early time in the U.S. history, there's very rarely just the evangelist who goes, but you have people who go before and pray. You have people who are with them and pray. And so there's this idea of community, this idea of being together and strengthening those whom you are with. One commentary says, the command, though, is not to each of them to tough it out and try harder. Which, if you think about it, so much of our culture says, right? Tough it out. Dig deeper. Work harder. The American dream is only one step away if we just keep going. And everything, right, in our culture says keep going. And so much of technology, so much of what is created is in this idea of making life easy so we can do more. And yet, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like life is easier in any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes I actually hope, I'm like, maybe I could go back to high school where like the worst thing in my life was a test the next day, <laughs> you know, like, or like trying to fit in with a group. That would be, that would be a lot simpler in some ways. The command is to all of the readers to strengthen each other to encourage each other, to brace each other up and stand strong alongside one another. Isaiah 35, 4 is also really important. Because as much as it is for us to strengthen and we have that call, we have that responsibility, Again, we can still fall into that way of thinking that culture wants us to say, work harder, strive more with strengthening. And so we can run around looking for all the weaknesses and, and, and just running, and we become so busy and preoccupied trying to help everybody. But verse 4, it promises that God will come and deliver his people. The promise of scripture is that God will help us through the persecution. God will help us through the pressures and the problems of life. And so as we wait on him, as we endure with one another, the strengthening comes in encouragement. Not fixing necessarily everybody's problem or weaknesses, but the building up, the bracing, the coming alongside. And this is where we kind of get into this idea then of soul. Because in Acts, in Hebrews, in Isaiah, there's never really specifics as to what strengthening looks like. There's never a do this. 
which would be really nice, right? If I could just have a how-to. And that's that cultural belief, right, of making life easy. If you could just tell me how to, then I'll just do that and get the result. But that's not how relationships work. That's not how God created us. It's not how we're wired. And so it's not a product of what actually, we can't do a how-to and get the same outcome. We won't be left feeling fulfilled as an individual. I can fix someone's problem, right? Or the saying, right? Um, give a man a fish, whatever, and, and you feed him for a day. Teach him how to fish. You feed him for his life. And, and it's that same kind of idea, right? Like when we do the how-to, when we try to take the shortcut, when we look for the easy way, we might be able to fix something or get an outcome that looks good, but it's not going to be fulfilling. It's not going to actually encourage or strengthen us. So what do we strengthen? We strengthen souls. Soul here is a pretty broad word, but it's a really important word to understand. Soul is, in uh, the Old Testament, translated nefesh, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Come on. I thought DJ had us better trained than this. Right? Say after me, Nefesh. All right. We will inform him not to listen to that so that he will not be discouraged. Whew. So in the New Testament, it's psyche or psyche, right? Or suka, if you uh, pronounce it according to the uh, Greek letters, right? So you have nefesh and psyche both get translated in scripture as soul or life. At the root of what they are, it's breath, right? So if you remember in Genesis, when God breathes in the nostrils of Adam, he is breathing nefesh. And if you read in the Genesis, all the like, when the animals are given life, it's nefesh. And so you have this whole um, idea of, of breath, which translates to soul or life. Deuteronomy 6.5. Anybody know what that is? The what? The Shema. Yeah, exactly. The Shema, which is uh, the Jewish scripture that they are commanded to repeat every morning, right? And it is um, what we know as 6.5 is not the beginning of the Shema, but it's part of the Shema where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And in the New Testament, we see this repeated by Jesus in Mark and Luke, right? And what Jesus does is he adds mind to that part of the Shema. And so we have love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength and might meaning the same thing. So what are these parts? Because what we're commanded to do is love God with all four of those parts. And so we understand those parts to be each distinct, but yet a part of the whole of who we are. So this gets a little bit confusing because when we think about our heart, culturally and I think um, just in life, we often attribute that to emotion. 
But heart actually in scriptures and how Dallas Willard defines it is actually attributed to our will and our, like, our desires, our motivations. And so when we think about worshiping God with our heart, it's not being necessarily emotional that God's asking of us. He's actually asking us to set our will towards him, to make that conscious choice to worship him, that he is God. Mind, we want to isolate to just kind of our thoughts, our, our thinking, our uh, perceptions, interpretations, imagination, but that actually also includes our emotions. We can, we can feel things, and even like my own actions, right? I'm like down here, we feel things, right? Like in our gut and in our heart. But our mind does kind of the interpretation. It does the um, pairing up of like, oh, that's what that feeling is. That's happiness. That's joy. That's sorrow. And so Willard attributes our emotions to our mind. So when we think about worshiping God with our mind, it's with our thoughts, with our emotion, with our, 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 our imagination, our understanding, strength, pretty basic, right? This is our physical self, right? I said I would challenge the youth today because I taught them this in Sunday school. So you remembered? That's good. And our physical part is our, our body, yeah, and our ability and kind of the force with which we engage the world. Right? So that, those are those three. Now we come to soul. The soul is that dimension of the person, and this is from Willard, that interrelates all of the other dimensions, meaning heart, mind, and strength, so that they form one life. You follow that? So the soul is that dimension of the person that interrelates all of the other dimensions so that they form one life. So the soul really captures kind of the whole person. It's it's where we are us. It's where we get kind of our distinctness, our uniqueness. And... a part of it is our, like, our individuality. But a part of it is, that's that part that just gets God. And it's the part where, like, really we get to just be present if we allow ourselves to be present with God. It's, it's the part that gives us life. It's what makes us distinct, makes us unique, makes us the, the dominant species that God created, you know? Not in a power way, but in a, in a way of being able to worship God with the fullness of who we are, who he has created us to be. I like to think of it as that part of us that's just aware. It's the part that just knows. Knows that God is good. It's the part that's just, just rests in the comfort of knowing I don't have to try to be anything else. 
Because when I'm alone with God, he sees my soul and he says it's good because it's what he created. It's the breath he breathed into me. Before we even get to the Shema in Deuteronomy, we read in verse 4-9, it says, to take care and keep your soul diligently. So here again, we have this directive to actually take care of it, to tend to our soul, to pay attention to this part of who we are. And, and Willard talks about this idea that like when our spirit or, or the heart of a person is regenerated, when it's redeemed, when we actually experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we're able to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that a lot of times the, the struggle to actually engage God fully in who we are becomes because those four parts aren't aligned. They're, they're out of order, out of sync. You know, maybe our will is focused inward towards us, but yet our heart and our mind want to be engaged. Well, not our heart because that's our will, but our mind and our strength want to be engaged in this worship song, but like our, something's off in our will. And we're just like, actually, I'd rather be off doing this thing with somebody else. You know, our, our motivation is different. How often do we question that in other people, right? See somebody singing and you're like, Oh, yeah, they're doing that for their own self. Yeah, they're not doing that for whatever, you know? It, and, and we see it in others. We'll want to judge or question it in others. But when we look at ourselves, do we pay attention to that? You know, maybe our emotion is we want to be there. Maybe our will is that we want to be there, but our mind can't stop thinking about, did I set the dishwasher to run or not? Right? And so there's all these distractions that want to pull us away. But what God actually asks us is he asks us to love and worship him in all four of those ways. And when we get to, then there's this alignment of all those four things. There's this alignment in ourselves and we are fully engaged. And we could observe that in others too. Where you could just look in a time of prayer, in a time of worship, in maybe somebody just sitting on a bench, in a park, just fully at rest, just fully content, just being present in a moment. And when I think about Paul strengthening the souls of the church, how important that is, because they are facing persecution. They are facing lies being fed to them all the time. And it doesn't say, like, Paul reiterated the doctrine. It doesn't say Paul reiterated or taught them theology. No, it says he strengthened their souls. Because what is so important is that alignment in us so that we can have right fellowship with God. Because when, if Paul were to take responsibility in that moment, then it would be about Paul and it would only go as far as Paul could take the new disciples. But it's not about Paul. It's about the relationship we have with God. 
And that when we, are, when we learn how to be in right relationship with God, when we learn how to tend to our souls, then it's unlimited what, where we could go, where God wants to take us, because it's based on the relationship that we have with God. And so I can receive then from the body when I'm in a weakness, right? When I need to be braced up, when I need to be strengthened, I can receive because I recognize they are God ministering to me. They are doing their role. This is why I'm a part of the body, right? To be around people who love me and care for me and want to see me be a part of the church and see the church flourish in the way that God has called it to. One of, I think, the greatest challenges we face maybe before today even, I don't know, maybe before my time, I wasn't alive so I can't say, but I can say that today, being preoccupied with so many other things in our life completely drains the soul. John Ortberg, in a conversation uh, with Willard, he says this, he says, hurry is the great enemy of souls in our day. Being busy is mostly a condition of our outer world. It is having many things to do. Being hurried is a problem of the soul. It's being so preoccupied with myself and what myself has to do that I am no longer able to be fully present with God and fully present with you. There is no way a soul can thrive when it is hurried. When I read that, it was super convicting. Because I just, I, from my own life, I always think about, like, what's the next thing I need to do for somebody? Some ways, that's my job. I sit with people all day, and you would think, like, all right, what a great opportunity to be present with people. But it's really easy not to be present with somebody. And it's really humbling when that person notices and calls you out on it, too. Um, It's good, though. It's good. Keeps you humble. But it is really easy, right, to be hurried, to be thinking about what does that person need or what's the next thing that I have to do. And we're preoccupied. I wish there was a great how-to to answer that. I would love it, unfortunately, if there was like something I could just wake up every morning and do 10, 15 minutes that would just give me that present, you know, tending to my soul thing. But what I'm learning, what I'm beginning to understand is that there isn't anything that's going to give me that. That's what's going to give me that is if I actually slow myself down. If I make sure that I'm tending to my soul with God. Am I prioritizing being with God? And what I'm learning is that it's not that like I have to wake up every morning and make sure I have 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, 
in the Bible with God. It, it doesn't have to be that rigid. But that's also really good if you do that. But that it's, I have to be with God. And whatever that looks like for me is really important. And so, can I be present with God as I'm sitting on the rug playing ponies with my daughter? How important is that? You know, and, and when I'm sitting across from somebody who's sharing in, in my counseling office their, their deep pain, am I present with God as I'm sitting there with them? And am I taking time to just be present with just God? Whether it's reading the scriptures, whether it's going for a walk, whether it is listening to a song that I thoroughly enjoy, whether it is just laying in my bed and staring at the ceiling as I think about God. Like, whatever it is, am I taking time to present my soul in its strengths and its weaknesses before God. Because one thing I'm very aware of is even though I'm trained to be a counselor, I have not healed a single person. And people have walked out of my office and they have been grateful and they have, have been blessed and they have... Um, been able to move forward in their walks of life. But healing, true transformation, true restoration of their soul can only happen, and my soul can only happen when we're with God. And so are we strengthening the souls of one another by encouraging one another to be with God, to present our souls battered, bruised, whatever they are, from living out the mission that God has for us, are we encouraging and strengthening the body in this way? Paul goes on, he says he encourages the disciples in the continuance of faith, right? Stay in it. This is worth it. Keep going. Faith is important. This is a good cause. The mission is right, is good. He talks about tribulations, right? Because the reality is, I would love it if being a follower of Christ was easy, right? Like we all would, that would be nice, but it's not. And if it is, then we're out of alignment. And it doesn't mean that you don't get to have nice moments or easy moments. Absolutely, those are important. But that there is persecution, there is tribulation, there are trials because God is working on us. He's wanting us to grow. He's wanting us to get stronger, work those muscles. And so Paul validates, yes, this is going to be hard at times. This is going to be difficult. But stay in it. Keep your soul in front of God. And then he appoints and commits elders. These aren't long-term believers. These are, these are new believers. But he identifies them. He says, you, you, I'm going to set you in a role of leadership here. Tend to this church. Tend to these 
people. Tend to the church in Lystra. Tend to the church in Derby. But again, you're a part of this bigger body. But tend to them. Serve them. Guide them. Strengthen their souls. And so that question comes to us. How, do, how are you tending to your soul? How are you strengthening the soul of the neighbor beside you? And, and just to ask yourself that question, just to ponder on it. Begin to, begin to just be aware of it. You know, when you go to Wawa, do you make eye contact with the cashier? Do you know her name? Or his name? Do you just go about your day, you know, and you do your thing and you get your work done? Or are you letting yourself be present? So much of culture right now wants us to numb out and be ineffective. But God actually, he calls us to strengthen the souls of men. My assumption is that's what Paul and Barnabas got when they returned to Antioch. And it says, and they remained no little time with the disciples back from their missionary journey. There was much to share, but I think there was much strengthening of Paul and Barnabas' soul to do as well. And they took the time even in those cities where they were stoned and cast out, they go back and they visit and they take the time to strengthen the souls. Would you pray with me? Father God, awaken ourselves to the presence that you are in our lives. Bring to awareness our souls. Bring to awareness the fullness that you have created us to worship you in. Father, may we reclaim time in our life for you. That we could be in communion with you, that our souls could be healed before you, that we would not feel forsaken like your son was on the cross because we allow ourselves to come into your presence and we allow you to minister to our souls, bringing comfort, bringing healing, restoration, redemption, so that when we go to walk out the mission you have for us, God, that we can handle the attacks of the enemy. We can handle being overwhelmed. We can handle being pushed back at times. And we can know that when we look to our left and to our right, there is a brother or a sister who is there to strengthen us in our need. That not only will you not forsake us, 
but you have called us as brothers and sisters to not forsake one another. Pray these things in your name. Amen.